Welcome to the Midcast, presented by the Mission Initiative Group of the Baptist Union of Scotland. Each month we will look at some of the key issues for mission in Scotland today. We'll bring you experienced voices, practical insights and unique stories, all focused on the mission of the church in Scotland. Hi there, welcome to the Midcast. My name's Glenn Innes. This is the third season of the Midcast and we've decided to change things up just a little bit. Over the last two years, what we've done is spend most of our time looking at the issues particularly facing Scotland and doing that by telling stories from around our nation, stories of mission and church and that kind of thing. However, we've decided that there is much for us to learn from around the world. And so the beginning part of season three is going to be a bit of a journey around the world, listening to voices and people who have the opportunity to speak to us from outside of our own context. The first one of those, which you're going to hear the first part of today, is with Brian Sanders. Now, I had the privilege of sitting down with Brian for about an hour and a half just before Christmas, and we sat down and we talked about all sorts of issues relating to mission and to how we do church in the 21st century in a post-Christian Western world. And Brian has some great thoughts around the church, particularly as it might appear smaller parts. So today's part is really the background to Brian's life and his movement into ministry and the foundation of the Underground Network. Uh, I hope you enjoy this and please do remember to subscribe so that you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes. Enjoy the conversation. Today we have the privilege of sitting down with Brian Sanders. Brian is an author, pastor, church planter, leader of a movement, uh, and he's sitting right next to me just now. So, uh, Brian, welcome to Scotland. Thank you. Thanks for having uh, me. We've managed to put the weather on especially for you, a little bit of rain yeah. and mist. And Authentic Scottish experience. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. Um, I use some words to describe you there. How how would you describe yourself? What do, what do you do? What's your... <laughs> I suppose my title is <clears throat> Executive Director of the Underground Network. That's the community we started some uh, maybe 13 years ago now. Okay. I don't know. I, I like the term... I've always liked the term Prime Minister. I thought that's a very nice... Uh, it seems a little pretentious here. Well, we need a new one, so... <laughs> <laughs> No, but that's good. It's like this servant, minister, servant, the first servant. I've heard, there's no way to use that term, clearly. Yeah. It's, it's been taken. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But that, that does feel like the, the 21st century leader, church leader, probably should, should understand themselves, frame their work as servanthood. You know? yeah. how, do we, how, how can we be at the bottom of the org chart, not at the top of the org chart? So, okay. <clears throat> I can't run around calling myself that, but I'd like to. First, first servant. Servant. Okay. Uh, so you are, have been here in Glasgow for a few days, but you are from uh, Florida. Yeah. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit of your story. How, how does Brian come to be a follower of Jesus, and then uh, how does the Underground Network come to be eventually? It's funny, I was just talking to Alan about this, but we, I was, you know, came from a broken home. My father was a maybe a troubling guy, violent, and my my mother sort of pushed him out when I was 11 and I I just thought okay I'm the man of the house now I should go to church that's what that's what the man of the house should do no idea what I was doing I ride my bike to this this little Presbyterian church sit in the back with the old ladies and 
I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> just had to listen. <laughs> but somehow, you know, I came to faith through that experience. Oh, wow. and, uh, somebody probably reached out to me. I eventually joined their youth thing, and that's the beginning of my my walk with God. But <clears throat> yeah, probably my my formative discipleship would have been in the university time, and and that that then led to a uh, I suppose a, the the beginning of my ministry career was in parachurch, you know, okay. doing college ministry with the InterVarsity. Okay. Um, so that's 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 the that's the beginning time. Okay. So you're at university, you're working with uh, InterVarsity, and you begin to experiment with church. Well, it's funny because you you as a parachurch person, you really at least I saw my identity primarily as a missionary. So you see yourself as a missionary, not as a church person. It's it's a sad dichotomy okay. you know, that you have to choose. I went to church. I was part of church leaderships. I would preach, those sort of things. But I really saw myself more as a missiologist. Actually, I, I can remember thinking ecclesiology is not something I should try to do because if I do it, I'm probably going to – there's going to be a breaking. I probably won't agree with this. So I tabled it. Like emotionally, okay. intellectually, just focus on mission, missiology. So I also lived in the inner city of my my uh, city <clears throat> and tried to to you know do work among the poor, live incarnationally, uh, while also trying to reach university, disciple students, okay. grow a work there and in other universities as well. So, so that, that apostolic urge was yeah. there. Great. So to interrupt you there, you, you've gone from being talking about university to being uh, among the poor yeah. and the marginalized. Talk about that drive there. It's theological. It was just theological. It's just a, a conviction I had that it's just one of those questions like, if Jesus were to live in my city, where would he live? And I just felt really drawn to the margins. Um, and to, to maybe, there, there's always been a part of me that. I'm an Enneagram 8. I don't know if you're into the Enneagram, mm. but you know, there's that defining yourself by what you're against. So you, you, you need a fight to be in. And you, you try to sort of pick a fight with the, the devil. You know? yeah. So where, where is there evil? And interestingly, that becomes a motif, an important motif in the formation of the underground, which is like, where will you get into the fray? Like, where in the fight will you take on the enemy? You know, mm-hmm. our fourth sort of component is to engage evil in all its forms. That's, like, what we mean to do. Mm-hmm. So the question is, where where, where do you have such deep and profound love? Uh, where are you so compelled by God that you're willing to get hurt, actually? You're willing to suffer love, you know, to... I, I would say that's a big component of mission too. We're, we're talking about mission and innovation, and <clears throat> innovation sounds like a a sort of fun experience, but in many ways it's not. It's a painful. You've got to get into the place of like real challenge. You know what? You know, Roger Martin would call a wicked problem. I like that. You know, the big, big challenge, like a, a problem is so mysterious, so difficult, so inscrutable. He actually wants to call it. This is this is a guy at the University of Toronto who wrote a yeah. book called The Design of Business, <clears throat> saying this is a wicked problem. I like that because it's evil. There's, mm-hmm. We're trying to. There there are some problems that are so bad. Are we willing to get in there and get hurt? Actually, in the process of learning. Um, so, for me, poverty, 
racial injustice, those kind of things were always going to have to be a part of our life and discipleship. So how do we how do we introduce students, which are you know the top one percent of the world, into that into the truth of the presence of God among the poor, the margins, mm. and every every context has margins, right? Yeah. So it really applies to all of us everywhere. <clears throat> so that maybe that's part of why we ended up there. So how, so that is, is that where Underground came from then? You've moved into that area and you've begun to start something there. I think, I think probably at some point we did start doing ecclesiology. It would have been maybe 2004 or something. And I moved in that neighborhood in 1996 and then was discipling students. So we saw, we saw a lot, we also lived in intentional communities. So we, we, we sort of urban monastic kind of style. Okay. And we saw a lot of people do that, move in, relocate into that neighborhood, that very poor crime-ridden neighborhood. And we just started doing life together and tried to solve problems. So th this also goes to our ecclesiology, like where, where, where does the church emerge? How does it emerge? Um, who can lead it? These are all questions that in many ways were, they were existentially determined. Like we, we saw it happening uh, among us. So... It wasn't just a cognitive process, like we were talking about, it's experimentation yeah. and learning from that. So, <clears throat> yes, we did start seeing uh, people coming into that space, doing that, still working on campus. And at some point you say, okay, what is the church actually? It's a dangerous question mm -hmm. to ask. You know, we talk about the ecclesial minimum. What if you stripped every single thing away and you were left with something, some components, and you had to admit, I guess that is the church. Maybe you want it to be more, but you'd have to admit at this this irreducible minimum. And I think that's part of that was part of the journey too, is recognizing is is this stuff that we're seeing happen here in the ministries we're creating, in the communities we're forming, in the way that we're presenting Jesus in the field of mission, is it the church actually? Is that what it is? Um, so we were we were part of conventional churches, but we were frustrated by that, complaining about it. I think I think you in your mid thirties, early to mid thirties, you probably wake up to your own critiques and say, "Wait, I, I don't have to. I don't have to complain. I, I can just change it." <laughs> you know, you're a grown man. You can yeah. you can you can do what you think is right. So at some point, you wake up to your own autonomy, your own agency. Uh, it's a very important moment, I think, in the life of a person <laughs> to say, stop complaining about the church. If you think it ought to be done differently, do it differently, you know, and love your family who, who may or may not. And you might be wrong. So own that, too. Own, own your own choice. That was what it was, Glenn, was just, can we make our own mistakes? Can, can, we, can we try to, to create a form of the church which was consistent or resonant with our own sense of convictions coming out of the place of mission and our identity as missionaries like could we could we could we create a form of the church which was biased towards mission which started with mission you know um, which was simple which didn't cost money which didn't carry with it some of these systemic challenges that nobody likes nobody actually think is work thinks is working in point of fact could we free ourselves from it? Ironically, once you do something like that, you, you, you can shed some of that immature critique. Um, and you can love again the conventional form of the church and say, yeah. we're, 
we're in this together, yeah. aren't we? You know, <clears throat> but you need to get free of it at some. I would say some of us need to try something else. Yeah, I, I think that you know, even just at a pastoral level, that's such a, a helpful insight that there's a moment that comes for people where where they're they're grown up enough to realise that things aren't working properly anymore. Yeah. They can't just accept it as it is. Uh, and I love that challenge to say, well, do something about it. Because I actually, a lot of people have just opted out, right? And, you know, in lots of different ways. I, I, I had a whole heap of friends. Where they point to the church to say, you ought to do this. You ought to care for orphans. You ought to be doing something for the homeless. You ought to. And this, I think this is one of our great struggles with the, with the form of church that we currently have, have inherited. It is, it is the church as spectacle. So the church is essentially something with a stage, mm-hmm. with professionals on the stage, and members, the parishioners, members, that their work is to observe. It is actually to, it's a spectacle that they're meant to watch. And actually, sit down, be quiet, don't say anything. When the plate passes, give a little bit of money. That's essentially... And believe the right doctrine. That's essentially what we've asked from them. So, so is it any wonder then when we turn around and say, "Hey, you know, do you care for the homeless? You, you." But they say, "Well, that's that, those are not the terms of the social contract that we've agreed to." Um, so we want people out there. All most church leaders I know want people in their congregations making disciples and and being salt and light wherever they are, incarnating. All of these ideas are not they're not anathema. We want them. But we, we've made a, a deal. We've made a sort of Faustian deal here that, that you, you're, you're meant to be quiet and we're going to be up front doing the talking. And now we've changed. Now we're changing the terms. Yeah. You know? So we, we, do have to, we do have to admit that. I think we do have to be brave enough to, to experiment with different structures yeah. to go along with a more, well, a renaissance of the priesthood of all believers. You know, that's... I think that's what we both would like to see. Yeah. So um, you've moved into inner city Tampa. You've been there quite a while now, eight years or so. You've started to see some sort of ecclesial uh, organization or or ecclesial movement begin. I've read your book about underground, so I know that underground is not one church. It's actually a network of churches. How does that begin? How does it go from you doing your thing and discipling people in that community to actually we've now got movement happening what how did that start and yeah what a great question um well because you asked it that way i'll say we we had this we ran this kind of intensive missionary thing six week training thing called the tampa urban project for years and years and i started at the end of that the last week of that project i started uh, running kind of a seminar with the, the students and saying, okay, now that you've lived here, pick one problem that you've seen and I want you to design a ministry, like a work that would address or even solve that problem. And so it was an act of like creative design and problem solving. And honestly, I think that unlocks something for all of us, that actually, whatever it was they were coming up with, and some of those people, some of those students came up with ideas. It was just, it was just an exercise, a simulation. 
But some of them came up with ideas and they walked out of that, that experience going, I have to do this. I actually have to do this. And did, and some of those, some of those ministries still exist today. They still right. exist, you know, 10, 15 years later. So it's just asking the question like, all right, yeah, sure, there are these problems. There are these people that don't know Jesus. There are these people that are far from something like equity or, or mercy or justice or something. Okay, well, what would you do? Like, as the church, as representatives of the kingdom of God, what would you, how could you build that? How could you solve it? And just, it's the pushing of agency and the priesthood into the hands of its people and then discovering these, these, there's some extraordinary ideas Things I never would have thought about, uh, nuances, niches that you just wouldn't have paid attention to, but people have different clear vantage points for. So I think that was the beginning of it to say actually what these people are doing then when they start something is meant to be the church. It's not meant to be something else. It's not meant to be just a, a nonprofit or a, an outreach or parachurch. What a diabolical concept that is. So, it runs alongside the church, but it isn't really the, the church. Like we're not giving the the sacred things of the church to them. Because I was a part of a parachurch ministry mm. for for a long time, and there's sort of a truce between the church and parachurch. And it's essentially like you go do mission, we'll outsource mission. It's that whole modality, yeah. sodality, yeah. Uh, false picture which is like okay you go do the work of mission and we will handle the sacramental life of the church Hmm. so as long as we didn't marry people or baptize people or serve communion (laughs) there was this there was this kind of uh, symbiosis between the two and I think what's happening what we see happening everywhere is people are the the parachurch people are waking up the missional people are waking up saying why can't I baptize the people I've led to faith. Why can't we serve? Why can't we share the Lord's supper together? It's weird. This isn't right. And then conventional churches are waking up and going, "Why can't we reach the university? Why can't we reach out to to secondary school students? Why can't we care about the inner city and the homeless? Why do we have to outsource that?" So they're waking up to their missional identity. Parachurch is waking up to their sacramental identity, and the truth is. Those are our those are our sacred rights, our inheritance as the people of God. Like, we shouldn't bifurcate those things. So we should we should walk in them, share them. So I want to see. I want to look at that and say, okay, is that actually just the church? What's happening there? And to to things that have been conventionally looked at as like mission or outreach or like a city mission, where they care for the homeless, they serve soup, something like that. Over time, I think what happens is there is a there is a, a sort of drifting from Jesus, drifting from the things of Jesus because we haven't said it's a church. Yeah. Actually. Oh, okay. You know, because we haven't we haven't given them the expectation to actually deliver Jesus okay. and the life of worship, even not worship in a sing song that kind of sense, yeah. but. But they've lost something. They've been diminished by that. And I think the church has been diminished by the outsourcing of mission. You know, by the, the, the pulling out of mission from its life, its core life. You know. Well, because we've stripped that away 
our discipleship is then dysfunctional totally. because we can do discipleship. We thought we can do discipleship without mission. Totally. And it, we've got this dysfunctional discipleship there. Um, yeah. That's really interesting. A moment ago, you mentioned uh, that uh, confronting evil was your fourth. Uh, yeah. I, I didn't catch the word you used. Yeah, I, uh, I don't even remember. Um, so, so you, you, you had a number of commitments uh, uh, with underground? Well, I get, yeah. So, if we had some sort of vision, definition of what we're trying to do, it would be to, to help people surrender to Jesus, to, to, to Jesus as Lord. Yeah. That would be maybe the first thing. To help them determine their calling. So, okay, what is it? You know, we, we do have this deep conviction that every single person is meant to have an assignment from God in his mission. Okay. Um, and then to connect them into communities. So you're not meant to do that alone. But yeah. to connect, connect them into communities. This is where we get the idea of microchurch. Not yeah. just go do your calling or start ministries or something. But to actually be the church with mm-hmm. a group of people who share the same calling. And then to confront evil in all its forms, that's through prayerful action. So it's yeah. it's activistic, yeah. it's it's visceral, it's um, physical, it's muscular. It's meant to it's meant to touch your life. You know, um, I do some now. I do some church consulting, and one of the one of the things I I do is sort of an eight part analysis of church systems. And one of the things I look at is governance. So I, I find myself reading a lot of bylaws. Okay. Which is funny because sometimes people, they haven't read their bylaws <laughs> in decades, yeah. you know. And I say, do you know your bylaws say this? And it's always really interesting to me of what membership, of what membership means mm-hmm. for a church in their bylaws. To say, this is what it means to be a member. And often it has to do with belief, mm-hmm. you know. And then when it comes to behavior, it's really just about attendance and giving. Yeah. That's, that's the definition. And if you put that in your bylaws, then you're basically saying that is what it means to be in a, That's what it means to be in the church. Yeah. It's, to me, it isn't muscular enough. It isn't, it isn't asking enough from us. You know? And yeah. so it, is it any wonder that we don't see the mission of God advancing in our context because we're not part of it. Yeah. You know? we're not, we've, not been, we've not been invited into, I, I would say, the more... Um, transformative part of being the church yeah 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 yeah. and so we've sold people short we right we, we've sold them short we we've we've said this is enough this is what it means to follow jesus and uh, actually i think your challenge to us is there, there's something profoundly more than that that will cost us and be painful and mm-hmm. all the things you already mentioned um so you've begun this do, do you have an intention that this will become a movement when you're you know, you've, you've got the students going to look at the things and you're thinking, okay, you know, four or five of them could do this and they, they could start something else. Was that the goal or did it happen by accident? In the beginning, I think it was just, let's just be who we are. You know, it's like breaking free and saying, it's okay, we're, we shouldn't, we don't have to hide this, we can, we can label it. But, you know, we did come to a point, we took about a year, so I went to about 50 people that I, I knew weren't really going to church anymore. That was a big thing. Yeah. So in 2007, I wrote a book called Life After Church, which is a story about 
us kind of walking away, that, that moving yeah. away to find the church, yeah. sort of leaving the church to find the church. That the emerging church kind of phase of things? I mean, it was, it was maybe at the tail end of yeah, that yeah, yeah. thing, but it was definitely leavers and the question of like, why are people leaving? And we're talking about people that love Jesus, though. Still, still really hot on Jesus, yeah. but not going to church. And yeah. so we, we counted about 50 people we knew who were in that category. And I just went to them one by one and said, look, um, what if we, what if we just did something else? What if we, I don't know what it is, but what if we dedicate the next part of our lives to figuring that out and doing something else? So we took about a year to pray, brainstorm, and at the end of that year, we sent a team of nine of us. I always wanted to go into the developing world to, to figure this out. So I just thought, you gotta get out of your own head. You gotta get out of your own box. Um, we needed, we just needed to be reset. So it's a long story, but we ended up choosing Manila, Philippines. So we ended up being, we spent nine months, uh, nine of us with our 10 kids. We had nine adults with 10 kids, uprooted our lives, went and, and, and planted ourselves in, in a slum in Metro Manila and worked with these Filipino church planters and just said, look, just we're resetting everything new operating system just teach us about everything teach yeah. us about god about community about evangelism about what the church is let's just start over and at night we would sneak away and consolidate some of these brainstorming sessions we had had and we wrote probably the thing i'm most proud of in terms of the underground's work product is our manifesto it's these 18 values and that was really born in the philippines and at the end of that, um, the, the other 40 or so people flew out to the Philippines for two weeks, and we just had this sort of, I don't know what you call it, birth of a movement. And then we did see, like, Lord, well, whoever, whoever's meant to be part of this will see the, this set of values. And I think that's one of the things that maybe that separates us slightly, is we don't, we don't rally around vision, like, let's accomplish this thing together, something together. But we rally around a set of values. And so it's doctrinal, but it's also aspirational. Mm. It's like, we believe this, therefore we will live this way. And it's quite difficult, actually. None of us really do live this manifesto, but we want to. Yeah. And it's that yearning that is the glue that holds our network together. So, and, it's, and part of that is microchurches. Part of it is the idea of the belief in the autonomous call on people and communities. And then whatever we created infrastructure-wise around that those people's calling would have to submit to them, would actually have to serve them. So the centralized relationship to the decentralized was an inversion of what we're used to. So rather than the centralized thing sort of holding all the cards and managing all of the power, we're essentially trying to invert that and say the dispersed um, decentralized expression of the church of Ecclesia is is the the proper expression of the church, and we as the as the institutional bit, the centralized bit, wake up every day trying to figure out how do we serve those people, how do we give away our resources, our our collective knowledge, all of that stuff, so that they can thrive, so that they can succeed. Great. And so, at the moment, Underground Network would have how many microchurches or? 
Well, Tampa, I think Tampa's still the biggest expression. So that there's maybe 200 um, wow. microchurches in that city. Um, but now I think we have maybe 20-ish sister movements around okay. the world. So it actually may be more than that. I, I don't know. I'm not yeah, keeping yeah, up. That, I'm not keeping up but we would check. It's it not doesn't, and it doesn't matter anyway. Yeah. But the point is it's... There is this kind of growing family of people that honestly read the manifesto. That's that's the glue. It's like we read this and you say, wait, that's my heart too. That's what we discover. It's not that we have persuaded people to believe something. It's that they already think it. I mean, we just met. Given the language for We just met. It's like there's a kindred, there's a sense of like, we're forged in the same fire. You meet people like this all over the world. It's not, we haven't, we haven't, We've, we've uncovered something, I think. We've discovered something, not created something. We're, we're just, we're indigenous to our own time. Um, it's funny because the, the underground was born in 2007. 2007 is a pretty important year, at least in North America. Globally, wow, right? That's yes. the the digital age. That's, yeah, so you have this huge financial crisis. There's a guy called Paul Sappho, who's a futurist at University of Berkeley, who says that the consumer economies, the sort of cultural economy of the consumer economy, actually gives way in 2000, November 2007 to what he calls the creator economy. Okay. So there's this massive cultural shift happening yeah. right there in 2007. 2007, Facebook goes public, yeah. Twitter is born, uh, Airbnb, Uber, these kind of yeah. crowdsourced yeah, yeah, yeah. abundance platforms. It's, it's a different way of thinking about the world. It's a yeah. different way of thinking about what's possible. Yeah. We look at our churches, we look at, so you, let's say you have 60 people, 100 people in your church. What do you see? You know, do you see scarcity? Or do you see, like Jesus would have said in John 4, you know, open your eyes. The fields are white. You know, this, there's so much potential here. Um, I think that's that's a part of the mentality that the shift that maybe the underground represents too. We're, we're a product of that time. We're we're a free form of church that came in a certain time. So whether you agree with the underground or not, something very important to me. It, it's fun to talk about. It's it's, but it's phenomenologically important. Mm. I would say the underground it, it came from this time. Yeah. So if no other if. if if nothing else, we ought to take that seriously. We ought to just say, okay, God, what do you, what do you mean by this? And what are, you, what are you up to? And there ends the first part of our conversation with Brian. Thanks for listening. Uh, I hope you found it encouraging, interesting, thought-provoking. I know there was a lot in there that really, uh, I guess, challenged me in my thinking of church and mission and how those things go together. If you have any thoughts that you'd like to get in touch with us about, please do drop us a line. You can get us at, at BUSMIGCAST on Twitter, or you can find us on the Baptist Union of Scotland website, scottishbaptist.com forward slash MIGCAST. Thanks for listening again. Please do subscribe. The episode with Brian will be out next Tuesday, the second part of that conversation where we take some time to explore this whole idea of what a microchurch is and how we might then go about beginning some of those, which is mostly what we do in part three. Thanks again for listening. I'm Glenn Innes. This has been the Midcast. We are out.
You've been listening to The MIGCAST, a presentation of the Mission Initiative Group of the Baptist Union of Scotland.